News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Voters in Saskatchewan are heading to the polls on October 26th. It's the third province to hold an election in the midst of the pandemic. Premier Scott Moe took over the leadership of the Saskatchewan party from Brad Wall in 2018, so this will be his first crack at getting elected as Premier. So there you go, BC. We are not the only ones heading to the polls in the pandemic. We know New Brunswick had to uh, because the situation they were in in BC, well, we are here, whether we like it or not. So what's going on in Saskatchewan? Why are they heading to the polls? We're joined now by Global News anchor and reporter Ryan Kessler in Saskatoon for more on this. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so was this Saskatchewan's time or was there more time to call an election here? Well, first of all, on behalf of Saskatchewan, I have to say that BC sort of stole our thunder here. Um, <laughs> so this this is the the legislative voting day for people in Saskatchewan is October 26th, so two days after BC. But uh, this comes after a springtime where there is rampant speculation that there could have been an early election call. But of course, that coincided basically right as the pandemic hit Canada. So ultimately, that was called off. And now we're going ahead with what was originally uh, put forward through legislation. Okay, and what has the situation been like in Saskatchewan? Because we hear an awful lot about, you know, Ontario, Quebec and other provinces. But how has COVID-19 been in your province? Well, certainly cases in Saskatchewan haven't been as high as they have been in other provinces, particularly uh, provinces like Quebec. But uh, we have seen uh, several localized outbreaks, uh, particularly in in different rural communities. We saw, much like Manitoba, uh, we saw a significant uptick in what the province refers to as communal living settings, basically the euphemism used for Hutterite colonies, um, certainly because of the the close quarters in those communities. We also saw outbreaks in northern Saskatchewan and some of the indigenous communities. And then we've also, much like the rest of Canada, through metro areas, we've seen outbreaks there. Um, Not so much on the long-term care side, and that really has been the saving grace for Saskatchewan. But I think the biggest thing coming out of all of this has just been the economic impact where we've seen the entire country affected, right? Yeah. And how has it affected Saskatchewan? Well, in Saskatchewan, I mean, we do, we are fortunate enough to have the lowest unemployment rate uh, during the pandemic. That being said, I mean, we, we saw people out of work for months. We saw local businesses having to close their doors. And then once they've reopened, of course, they've been faced with all kinds of extra costs to make sure everybody's kept safe and clean uh, and also just changing business models altogether. Um, so right. really, I mean, it's it's been pretty significant the same way it has been for Canada. It has Is the province in a deficit situation like BC, Alberta? and other provinces? You know, I don't have the exact figure with me, but it is it is certainly a deficit situation. And that really is the big ballot question, according to both of the parties, both oh. the governing Saskatchewan party and also the NDP, is just how you're going to bring this province out of the pandemic and achieve that economic recovery. What's fascinating here is that Saskatchewan party leader Scott Moe says uh, his party will not only make life more affordable for people in Saskatchewan, but they're also pledging to balance the budget by 2024. So that is Mm -hmm. a quick turnaround for a deficit of of hundreds of millions of dollars. On the flip side, the opposition NDP are saying that the only way the SAS party can achieve that is through austerity and cuts, whereas the New Democrats say that they'd be willing to invest in the people of this province through things like education, healthcare, uh, the people files, if you will. Right. So what is Scott Moe's popularity like? Because as we heard, this is his personal first time going to the polls as leader. Well, we did see a 
um, the the quarterly report from Angus Reed's putting him about fifth among Saskatchewan premiers, but the rating is still in the upper fifties, so that's still considered that's a strong good. rating. Yeah. And uh, certainly that's been the case for Scott Moe through his entire tenure, uh, being a popular premier in Canada, at times being the most popular premier in Canada. And that really is sort of a legacy that he inherited from Brad Wall. When Brad Wall was in power in Saskatchewan, he was the perennial premier favorite. Um, So really, once power changed hands from Brad Wall to Scott Moe, um, it really was sort of just carrying on the popularity of that Sask Party brand in this province. Okay, so do you expect the economics then to be the main thing, the main issues in this campaign? My suspicion is that we're going to talk about economics and affordability. Of course, you can't really separate the two, but but really all we're hearing on the campaign trail, of course, it's only officially been underway for one day now, but all we've heard really is about making sure that people can get back to work, that they have good jobs, that they've got stability in a time where there is just rampant instability, right? I love, you said housing, you said affordability would be an issue as well. Now that's something we yeah. talk a lot about here in BC, but what, like, in how in Saskatchewan? Uh, affordability in, in a different way. Of course, we don't, we don't have the housing prices that British Columbia has, not even close. Uh, but looking at things like taxes, for instance, I mean, uh, the SAS party had to raise the provincial sales tax uh, in the 2017 budget. That was a really hard budget that included a lot of cuts for a lot of different sectors, um, everything down to you know hearing aid plans um, we saw the Saskatchewan transportation company which is a provincial bus line it was cut so a lot of these sort of social right. services were cut so so the NDP's position is that there once existed this safety net in the province that caught all these people who may have fallen through the cracks and suddenly that net has been snipped away and people are again able to fall through so affordability more so in just you know right. paying the bills you know just being able to live more so than paying off an, an exorbitant million dollar mortgage right well we all have those issues right just a little bit different in each province exactly. ryan thank you so much for your time on this Thank you. That's Ryan Kessler, Global News anchor and reporter in Saskatoon, talking about how people in Saskatchewan are going to the polls uh, right around the same time that we are. We're the 24th. I believe that Ryan said they are the 26th. So busy time for them as well. Lots going on in Canadian politics these days. Let's talk about some news that we heard from Statistics Canada this week, that our total fertility rate has hit an all-time low. But what does total fertility rate mean? We thought, let's get this explained to us. So joining us now to talk more about it is Sarah Browner-Otto, Director of the Centre on Population Dynamics and Associate Professor of Sociology at McGill University. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So what does total fertility mean? So the total fertility rate is a hypothetical measure that uh, demographers and people who work at Statistics Canada calculate to that basically tells us if women today experience the current fertility rates every year of their reproductive life, it's the number of children they would have on average. So for us in Canada, they're saying that uh, women would have 1.47 children on average if they experienced the 2019 fertility rates for their whole life. And how has that changed, would you say, over the last 10, 20 years? So it's gone down some uh, over the last 10 years. 
The peak, uh, the recent peak was in 2008 at 1.6 uh, children on average, and it's gone down to uh, 1.47. But if you look back 20 years, we're at about the exact same place. It was 1.49 in the year 2000. So it's actually been, um, you know, within this, this this band, but fairly steady. I would, demographers would still talk about this as a decline, though. It's a tends to be a small number, so a little variation right. has a lot of meaning. So how does that stack up to other countries? So it is kind of in the middle of European countries. It's lower than what the fertility rate is in the United States. But like most countries, uh, this decline is, uh, is something that you see in most countries. Yeah. So, Okay. Do we know yeah. what some of the factors are behind that then? Yeah, definitely. I mean, some of the early factors for fertility decline in general were things like women's increasing education and participation in the labor market. More recently, it appears that economic uncertainty is also playing a big role. It's just not a time when a lot of people feel uh, really ready to take on the uh, burdens and expenses of having large families. Um, and also women are feeling a lot of pressure between work and family. It's really hard to manage a full-time career job and uh, kind of live up to the expectations that we have for parents at the same time. You mentioned that in 2008 was the last time we had seen it a little bit higher. And then, of course, we had the Great Recession. Do these economic concerns impact the fertility rate? Like, will we see, do you think, the results of the pandemic, for instance? Yeah, we definitely I, uh, see the impact of, of the economic situation on fertility rate. Uh, this decline is partially due to the economic recession, and I think it will continue to decline next year. Uh, you hear a lot of people saying, oh, but under lockdowns, everybody's home, and, you know, yeah. uh, what Bored. else should you do yeah. but make a baby? <laughs> well, it turns out people uh, tend to think about these decisions a little bit more than that. And so while maybe they're, uh, uh, you know, taking advantage of their time at home in in different ways, they're still not deciding right. to go ahead and have more children because they're home because they've lost their jobs. And that does not make people want to start having families. Right. So we're, we're thinking that, oh, it's like a winter storm, right? Where people are socked in yeah. for a couple of days where really they're not just socked in for a couple of days, but they're worried about how they're going to pay the bills. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So if this is a trend that we're seeing, what does it mean for Canada's population? So Canada doesn't really have to kind of um, think that much about the fertility rate in terms of what's happening to its overall population because we have such a high rate of migration. The population stays pretty stable and is still growing, even though the fertility rate is below what we would call the replacement rate of fertility of 2.1 kids on average. Um, so the it, I don't think that this has a big implication for for the Canadian population as a whole. We're still going to be the kind of thriving, growing uh, population with uh, a, a lot of diversity and, uh, you know, different components adding to the, the population growth. When was the last time we hit the 2.1 or the replacement rate for population? <laughs> um, I was looking at those numbers and it looks to me... Like it was about 
71. <laughs> okay, well, that was the year I was born. So that was a long yeah. time ago. So are you saying it's been on a decline ever since then? Yeah, it has. And it started declining uh, much before that. In 1960, the total fertility rate was almost four. Um, but by 1970, it had dropped down to 2.1 and has uh, continued. It really reached its low point around 1986, 87, and then has been sort of popping back and forth between what it is right now and about uh, 1.8. That's remarkable, though, that if you say in the early 1960s it was four and then by 1971 it was 2.1 or whatever, that's a huge shift in that 10-year period there. Yeah, that was incredibly dramatic. We tend not to see big changes like that in demographic rates. And that really was the story of increasing women's education and female labor force participation. Also, I, I'm in Quebec, and so a big part of the story there was the quiet revolution and just real massive social changes happening at that point that led to decreasing fertility. So for now, though, it looks like it's staying, even though it seems like it's quite low, steady. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not worried about low, decreasing fertility rates in general, um, but this one is not a big shock to us. I think it's something uh, along what we would expect in a in, a, in this, give, especially given the current economic situation. Right. So, would you expect this number to stay low for the next couple of years, given the economic situation? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that once we've sort of re entered the the non-pandemic world, that there'll be some stimulus uh, efforts into the economy that can kind of boost uh, household income and boost people's perceptions of what, uh, of how stable and steady their income is. I think that'll be an important part of it, but I wouldn't expect any big changes over the next couple of years. All right, Sarah, thanks so much for talking to us about it. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was fascinating. That's Sarah Bronner Otto, Director of the Center on Population Dynamics and Associate Professor of Sociology at McGill University, talking about the news from Statistics Canada that Canada's total fertility rate has hit an all-time low. But as you heard Sarah say, they were kind of expecting this, not unusual, especially when you've got the economic conditions the way they are now, and not going to have a huge impact. Although it is interesting to note how much those have very slightly fluctuated in the last like 45 years versus the 10 years before that. And a pet situation unfolded at my house yesterday that my first thought was, man, I've got to tell Nikki Reitmeyer about this because she's the most pet person I know. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. I love a good pet story. I'm glad that you waited to tell it to me. <laughs> what went on at your household last night? I tell you, like I have a dog and a cat, right? Mm-hmm. And most people pay more attention to the dog because he's so cute and he's a chocolate yeah. lab and you know people love dogs. Uh, but my cat is also uh, just so incredibly beautiful. Like she's just a beautiful cat and very well behaved. Like when we go for walks with the dog, she walks behind us. Like she, really? yes, she's known in the neighborhood because everybody knows who she is because they see her walking behind us. You know, and I'm sure she's thinking the dog is dumb because the dog's on a leash and the cat's just walking <laughs> behind us, right? So yeah, you know how cats are. So I've never had any problems with it. This cat is so well behaved that, like, when I, you know, I'm ready to go to bed, I just open the door and I call her. She comes in, and that's wow. like she's very well behaved. So yesterday, I go to make myself a sandwich for lunch. I make myself a tuna fish sandwich. I cut it in half, put half on a plate and leave it on the cutting board. I take the other half downstairs to my daughter who's working from home right now. So I take it down to her because I'm sharing my sandwich with her. I stop to talk to her for a couple minutes. You know, how's your day going? How are you? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. 
come back upstairs to see for the first time ever, and this cat is 12 years old, okay? First time ever, cat on the kitchen counter, on the cutting board, eating my sandwich. Oh, no. Full on. And I had looked at her earlier when I opened the can of tuna because I thought, oh, I'll give her some tuna. But I look, oh, no, she's sound asleep on the couch. I'm like, oh, I won't worry about the cat because she's getting kind of old, right? So I left it, didn't think, let's rinse my can out, whatever. I'm literally gone for five minutes. I come back and she'd push the bread off the top of the sandwich and she was gnawing down (laughs) on my sandwich. She wasn't asleep on the couch. She was waiting to strike. Exactly. (laughs) She had one eye open. She heard that can of tuna open. She thought, perfect. I'm going to wait till this idiot walks downstairs and then there's my chance to strike. I couldn't believe it. That is hilarious. Couldn't believe it. I had a total meltdown because I had been testing her. She loves those um, temptations, you know, those cat treats. Just like the commercial. Yeah, you Just shake like, the bag and the cat comes running. I call that cat crack. She loves that <laughs> stuff, like loves that stuff. So I always I give her one, like, you know, periodically throughout the day. But I, I shake them out and I leave like four or five of them on the counter. So if she wants oh. one, I can just, you know, give her one. But she never eats them. So I've, oh, I've, okay. I was like, oh, she obviously doesn't get up on the counters, even though I see cat hair up there. I go so because well behaved, yeah. I leave like a handful of treats there and she never eats them. And then there she is eating my sandwich on the counter. <laughs> Isn't that funny? So what did you do? Were you just so, I, I mean, did you yell at her? Were you yes. shocked? I yelled at her. I just screamed at her. And then, of course, that brought out everybody else in the house being like, what is the matter with you? And I was just like, I, yeah, I couldn't believe this cat. And then I was mad at her for the rest of the day, which she knew. And I kept telling her, I'm not talking to you and I'm not giving you treats. <laughs> <laughs> so she knew that and she avoided me for the rest of the day. But I'm still astounded that she was eating my sandwich. I had to cut that section of my sandwich off and everything. Like, have your dogs ever done something crazy like that? You know what this sort of reminds me of is when I was living in Calgary many moons ago, we had a, a puppy and we were, you know, training the puppy. So you're out at three in the morning because we lived in an apartment building. So, you know, downstairs you go at three in the morning, you got to take the puppy down because it has to go to the bathroom. And one of these mornings and so sort of the early days of having this dog, we ran into the neighbor down there and, I said, I said, geez, no, you know, what are you doing down here? It's it's three in the morning. I'm training a puppy. So, you know, I got to come downstairs frequently with the dog to right. go to the bathroom. But but you have a great Dane who is, you know, two oh or boy. three years old. You're past the puppy stage point. Your dog is massive. You know, I'm surprised <laughs> to see you guys down here together. And he goes, Nikki, you won't believe what happened. He goes, my dog is so big that it, when it stands up, it can literally reach a loaf of bread off the top of the refrigerator. No. That's how big this dog was. Imagine this thing in a small apartment. He said, so I had some laxative pills up high. Oh, no. And the dog, who was going through a phase where it was getting into everything, got into these laxative pills. And he said, Nikki, I don't want to horrify you at this time of the morning, but imagine what my apartment looks like after my Great Dane has gotten into my laxative pills. I live in 500 square feet. I think you can imagine what my place looks like. That's a nightmare right there. That's terrible. This is the thing, and I've never had a dog do this either. So we've like, we've had pets, lots of pets over the years. None of them have has ever like gotten up on a counter like that dog did or like my cat did yesterday. And you're telling me your dogs never did this? I had well, my my dog that I have currently now, she's a rescue. So when I first got her, she was cheeky and she tried to jump up to grab a loaf of bread off the counter. It was the first and last time she ever tried that because I also yelled at her quite thoroughly. Uh, however, yeah, I'll never forget hearing that distinct thud from the kitchen and you go, hold what on a second that? here. 
yeah what's going on here and of course you race it and there she is you know looking startled with a loaf of bread on the ground you think oh you know i'm gonna get you but yeah no otherwise they uh they, they tend to, st- well, I shouldn't say that, they tend to stay off things, but they find many other things to get into, of course. <laughs> yeah, I know. I used to have a, the, my previous puppy, well, previous dog that we had for many, many years, used to love, like, going through the garbage. And so oh, that was a problem, yeah. but, like, had to break her of that habit. But, yeah, overall, not a problem. I just couldn't, I don't know. I, I was shocked, shocked yesterday. You know, I'd love to hear people's stories on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. If you have a story like this where your pet has gotten into something, done something crazy that either made you laugh or scream, give us a call on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. Cat or dog, that would be a good one, 604-331-2899. Thank you for that, Nikki. I'm going to give you a minute to answer, sir. You have repeatedly criticized... You have to answer his statement. You have repeatedly... No, you've been talking back and forth. I'm asking you... I would love to end it. Where was the mic kill button? That's all, like, you know, I watched maybe five minutes because I wanted to preserve my mental state uh, of that debate last night. And that's all I could wonder was, do they not have a button where they can just kill the mic when the person is not supposed to be talking? Oh, boy. So much to unpack from that last night. Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini joins us now. Reggie, have you recovered? Uh, I I didn't sleep. (laughs) And is that because it was still running around in your head or because you were too busy working? Um, let's call it a combination of both. Yeah, it was really something with all the prep, all the hype and everything. Uh, boy, it, it was the structure of the debate seemed to me really, really bad. Like what was Chris Wallace doing? Well, I mean, look, the structure of the debate was really how debates go every single time there is a presidential debate every four years. The difference is we now have Donald Trump as an incumbent trying to run as a challenger, and he threw the debate off course. He took away the decades of kind of posture and poise that we've seen uh, to try and make this solely an election about him, not his policies, not Joe Biden, election about him, his legacy, uh, and, and simply why he wants to retain power. Right. We also know, though, that debates are kind of made on the quip, right? Like there's always something memorable that comes out in the, ne- in the days after we realize that's kind of what was memorable about the debate. What do you think it was last night? Well, I mean, th- th- there's a lot. I mean, it, it was it was the simple dis- dissolution of, of how uh, debate policy uh, is supposed to be carried out by presidential candidates. But the president's comments that he made about white uh, about um, uh, in- inability to disavow white supremacy, the president's comments about uh, baseless, fraudulent claims for the election and his call to action by supporters to take out and carry out voter intimidation at the polls, uh, the president's inability to do and carry out and describe what he will do in four years after he's reelected, uh, those are all memorable, but so too are moments from Joe Biden. A, his inability to be able to put forward a policy platform because of the interruptions, uh, him telling the President of the United States to shut up, calling the President of the United States a clown. I mean, this, this really was not a presidential debate. No, it wasn't. That will you shut up man seems to be the line that has resonated. They're already selling t-shirts and mugs with this on there. Yeah, I mean, look, that was Joe Biden kind of saying the quiet part out loud, but at the same time kind of doing what Hillary Clinton didn't get the chance to do in 2016, but it also allowed for Joe Biden to be sucked into that insult vortex that President Trump had come out swinging with right at the very beginning, and that is where things started to derail. Uh, it, it, It took Joe Biden off of his platform it didn't stop him from being able to continue to speak to the American public, but it just uh, kind of lowered right. the level of the debate. Yeah, not stellar for both candidates. However, a lot of damage control being done by the Trump campaign today in regards to those white supremacy comments. Uh, do you think there'll have to be more cleanup on that? I mean, look, 
the, the bigger question here is why does the president of the United States continuously need to be asked do you disavow well, white yeah. supremacy? That's that's something that shouldn't need to be asked to a president. And the fact that his his people, whether it's the campaign or in the White House, have to continuously go and do these cleanup efforts on what the president meant to say or here's what we think he was trying to say uh, does a disservice to not only uh, the Republican Party, but to the office of the presidency. So cleanup or not, these are going to be words that now stick with voters through the campaign. So what are the assessments this morning, Reggie, in terms of like the audience and people watching? Like who won? Who lost? Well, look, it's hard to say who won that debate last night uh, because I don't think either of them could be considered a winner. But the ultimate loser last night was the American public. And the number one loser were the undecided voters across America who were looking for something to to attach themselves to, to give them hope on how they want to see America carried for the next four years. And if anybody went into that debate looking to potentially make their mind up, there's a chance that they were pushed away even further. And that 10 percent of undecideds across America could become a make or break situation. And if they don't stick around for debate number two this could be problematic oh let's talk about debate number two when when is this supposed to happen and will anything be different from what we saw well, you know, I'm sure that the Committee on Presidential uh, uh, Debates, which is a nonpartisan committee, is actively working to figure out if there is something that they can do. Because, look, we all say that there should be a button to turn the mics off, but yeah. that could make the moderator look partisan uh, and biased. So they have to be careful about that. Uh, you know, th- there is going to be a second debate from what we know right now. Both parties have said that they are interested in doing that. But is is the American public going to be interested in watching that spectacle and debacle play out once again is yet to be seen. Uh, the vice presidential debate will happen next week. There's a potential here for that to kind of set the tone as to what the second debate could potentially look like here. But after last night, again, if you didn't have your mind made up, you're either still firmly in the base of, of those two men that were up on stage, or you may think that casting your ballot is going to be a meaningless event this year. All right, Reggie, thanks very much. Try to get some sleep. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, summing up how the debates went last night. Remember how we used to think, oh, things will eventually get back to normal. We won't be doing this for very long. I think we've sort of come to the realization, unfortunately, over the last six to eight months that, you know, things, some things are not going to go back to the way they were before, even when and if this pandemic comes to an end. And we will always talk about the changes that happen. For instance, perhaps in your workplace. So many people who are comfortable working from home could potentially change the way businesses operate their kind of brick and mortar offices for sure. The commercial vacancy rate downtown is definitely ticking up. And that was in what was a very tight market prior to all of this. So we wanted to talk about that trend in particular this morning. So joining us is Jason Kisselbach, who's the Senior Vice President and Managing Director at CBRE Group. Uh, Of course, they deal with a lot of commercial real estate. Jason, thanks for being here. Thank you. Now, Vancouver was a notoriously very tight market prior to all of this happening, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, uh, in fact, uh, tied with Toronto for lowest vacancy rate in North America, um, a title which we still hold, even though the vacancy rate is ticking up uh, a little bit quarter over quarter. Yeah, can we talk a bit about how much has that vacancy rate changed then in the last six months? Um, Well, over the past uh, quarter, it's increased about 130 basis points. So it's, I would say it's a fairly significant increase um, quarter over quarter. Through the summer months, what we saw was a lot of businesses um, that had uncertainty about um, what they wanted to do long-term with their office space, put their office up for sublease, uh, in particular if if a lot of their workforce was working from home, um, just to see if they could um, kind of reduce their exposure and then um, figure out 
figure out what they wanted to do longer term. So that has added to the vacancy rate. Right. So do you think that we're like, things still have to shake out a little bit more, perhaps? I know a lot of companies are right now kind of in the midst of figuring out what to do with their office spaces. Like, should we send people back? Should we let people still work from home? Yeah, that's the the big debate that is uh, is happening. It's live right now. So to answer your question, yeah, I, I would say there's still it needs to shake out. Um, I, there's a bit of a lack of urgency right now for um, office tenants to go sign a 10-year lease for a significant amount of office space. But we are seeing a shift in the narrative. Early on, a lot of people were saying you know, work from home is great. We could do this forever. Um, and it's it's shifting now to a bit of, okay, we're getting fatigued with all of the virtual meetings. It's hard to onboard new staff. Um, we still want to have our culture and, and all of that happens at the office. So we are seeing the narrative shift a bit to, okay, how do we get people back in safely, contact trace, you know, distance and all those sort of things. Right. So is that going to think you think still going to shake out then for the Vancouver market over the next year? Hard to put a timeline on it, um, but we are already having those conversations with our clients who say, okay, we want to come back in some capacity now. You know, what is the right amount of, of people to have back as a percentage of our total workforce? And then how do we do that? You know, maybe do some pilot projects with smaller groups and then um, ideally start to ramp up the amount of people that you bring back to the office. What has this meant for construction of new office space? So at the start of this year, we had the most amount of office space under construction uh, in the history of downtown Vancouver, and we still have that. A significant amount of that had been pre-leased because we had uh, such high demand for office space. Uh, thankfully, the government deemed construction an essential service, so all of that is still uh, moving along uh, and set to deliver more or less on the same timeline. So construction is still happening. Um, yeah. Right, but I would imagine, though, Jason, if you're, if you're a tenant and you had mm-hmm. signed one of those pre-leases a year ago or two years ago, wouldn't you want your landlord to be a little bit more flexible right now? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of, um, you know, Tenants and landlords having just to work together and work the problem. Um, those leases that have been signed for two, three years from now, I think the, the the rationale right now is it's so far out, things are going to be different by then. Let's not worry about that uh, at this point. Um, and a lot of those were larger kind of household name tenants that we haven't seen right. them put the space on the market for sublease. It's been more of the kind of smaller local-based tenants. Interesting. Well, Jason, thank you very much for your time. You bet. Thanks a lot. Jason Kisselback, who's the Senior Vice President and Managing Director at CBRE Group, talking about commercial vacancy rates in Vancouver. And you know what? That's true. That's something that really has changed. At the beginning of the pandemic with the lockdown, oh, there was a rush to talk about how, oh, this is changing everything and, oh, this is going to impact us. And now I think people are and businesses and everybody are just much more philosophical about the whole situation like, uh, we don't really 
really know what the next six months are going to be like, or we don't know if this is going to be a permanent change because they realize that, yeah, we, maybe people don't want to work from home forever. Maybe they have to have some more flexibility. So there is a time of flux right now. Now, tell me your story. If you've been working from home, are you tired of it? Are you ready to go back to work? What is your situation? We're kind of in the process of working that through in our office space as well. But what is happening in your workplace? Do they want you to come back? Do you want to stay home? What are you comfortable with? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. That's really good to listen to actually right now because it's very soothing, very calming, and it sounds like Canadians could use that. New survey out this morning uh, asking us whether or not we are getting more worried about COVID-19 compared to, say, the last couple of months. Angus Reid has been doing this survey, so let's find out what the results are. Joining us now, Shachi Curl, the Angus Reid Institute's Executive Director. Good morning, Shachi. Good morning, Simi. So what did you ask people? Well, we're checking in on Canadians, on British Columbians every every few weeks on a number of issues related to COVID. This time we wanted to come back and talk to them as we have in the past about issues relating to their own levels of personal concern around getting sick. Do you yourself think you may fall ill from COVID-19? And also worries and concerns uh, for, for friends and family. Also, we wanted to ask people, you know, how's your mental health doing? Like, how are you doing these days? And then in terms of people's, uh, in terms of community health and also the economy, we wanted to understand, uh, do Canadians think that the worst is over or, or whether it's yet to come? So that was what we asked. Okay, and what did people tell you? <laughs> what we found is that as cases have begun spiking and rising again, not just in BC, but across the country, particularly Ontario and Quebec, two places that are now seeing renewed lockdowns and, and targeted closures, targeted restrictions, um, we are basically back to where we were uh, in mid to early March around level of concern. Uh, regarding becoming ill um, and level of concern around friends and family falling ill. So we have not been this worried about COVID-19 as a country since the spring. That's really saying something, though, isn't it? Because you'd think that people are starting to feel better, get this under control, but that would indicate that we don't feel that way. No, and indeed, as as the numbers have ebbed and flowed, uh, as new cases have gone up and gone down, we've seen levels of concern go up and go down. So there was a real trough when, uh, you know, in B.C. and other parts of the country through June and July, we, we saw public health officials congratulating us and saying, good job, you've managed to flatten the curve. There have been very few or only single digits of new cases uh, I think everyone at that point said, hey, this thing is almost over. Yeah. The economic effects are going to be behind us. The health effects are going to be behind us. Uh, but now, hey, we are into this second wave. And so for those who always thought the worst was yet to come because of the second wave, um, they are now joined by others who, who largely thought that COVID was maybe in the rearview mirror. Right. And so you're right, because we all had that reckoning at the end of August, beginning of September, being like, oh, maybe we let our guard down too much. So it maybe it's hitting us harder the second time around. In some ways, I think that level of anxiety or awareness is is hitting hard. I don't know if it's harder because, you know, this is only <laughs> this, this is going to be a long haul semi and, oh, and we are still into the relatively early days of it. So we don't know how much worse 
um, our own mindsets or levels of concern around this are, are going to get. I'll, I'll check on that in a few weeks again. But I can tell you in terms of mental health, um, people overall in this country, in this province, feel like they're doing okay. But younger people especially are having uh, a, a worse time of it. So those aged 18 to 34, particularly young men, the youngest men, are most likely to say that actually that their their mental health right now is is pretty poor. It's right. not good. Mm. A lot of that, by the way, is tied to job loss because we know that younger workers, particularly in the service sector, have been hit hardest uh, by job losses as a result of shutdowns, as a result of you know what's happened in, in the service and tourism industries. But there is one cohort that's, that's having an even rougher go of it, and that's women, middle-aged women ages 35 to 54, the ones, that's the cohort, Simi, we know that looking after kids and looking after elderly uh, parents or elderly relatives. And working, yeah. And working or trying to work or perhaps have lost work because they work in the service sector too. And uh, because we know also that job losses have disproportionately affected women. So they are walking bundles of stress at the moment. There's no doubt about that, and that's what we're seeing with these data. All right, Shachi, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Simi. Shachi Curl, the executive director of the Angus Reid Institute. They have been, every once in a while, kind of monitoring the mental health of Canadians and how we're feeling, and some really interesting results in this latest survey that they did there. Seven in 10 Canadians, they found, now say they are concerned about personally contracting COVID-19. Now that is up. There's a low point of 46% of people who felt that in June. Now it's more like 70% of people feel that. That's a big difference. Uh, 73% of people also say that they feel the worst of the economic impacts is yet to come for their province. Back in June, when they asked people that question, About half of Canadians said that. So even that has increased by about 20 percentage points. That's a lot of people who are thinking now that we are not almost out of this, that we are still right in the middle of it. So no doubt that impacts people's mental health and how they're feeling about this. All right, so here's some good advice for us right now, especially given that the weather is so nice. Go outside and you know what? Take your camera or maybe your phone with you. That is essentially the message from the BC Parks Foundation. The foundation is encouraging people to snap photos of animals, insects, plant life that you find interesting. And why, you ask? Well, their goal is to collect 1 million observations of wildlife in our province. And this is part of a huge project that they are undertaking to help manage, conserve, research, and protect all of the creatures that actually live in BC. Our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to learn more about this project by speaking with Emma Griggs, who's the program manager for Wildlife Rivers at the BC Parks Foundation, and Andy Day, CEO of the foundation. What is the goal of the Big Nature Challenge? So we wanted to engage British Columbians to collect a million observations of life by the end of the year uh, all around the province. So that can be animals, plants, insects. You can record record bird songs. You can take photos of uh, animal footprints. And using a few different platforms, you sort of upload these as data points uh, called citizen science data. And the response has been just extraordinary. We're at just over 950,000 as of this morning. Um, So our goal was, you know, to get people outside collecting these observations. And if we're able to reach a million, if everyone gets out there, we could go 
much farther beyond a million um, and show leadership in BC internationally, nationally, I and mean, the UN are going to be meeting about the biodiversity, uh, biodiversity crisis at the UN Congress on Biodiversity coming up pretty quickly here. And this shows that British Columbians are doing something powerful to protect our biodiversity and learn more about our biodiversity and sort of encourage other countries to follow suit. That is really cool. Andrew, how did this idea come about? Well, there's been uh, biodiversity. I think a lot of people know we've, we've seen massive declines in uh, the diversity of life over the last 50 years. And whether that's songbirds or mammals, um, it, it is a real global crisis happening. And British Columbia is really uh, important in the world because it has some of the highest levels of biodiversity in the whole temperate zone. And it's also a huge province. And we thought, well, how are we going <laughs> to how are you going to collect information about all this life around us and we're really blessed by it and last year we raised three million dollars in three months to to protect some land and it it was a a a great story that went viral around the world and we thought well let's do the same thing let's just do it through crowdsourcing and you know british Columbians love to get outside so when they're outside let's just say you know take a few pictures notice what's around you look around and and that's and that's what's happened. It's been this incredible uh, kind of you know donate a, donate and not donate your your what you notice when you're outside. And it's it's just an incredible idea with an incredible response. That's fantastic, uh, Emma. What kind of species have people been spotting so far? Well, there's been over thirteen thousand species observed around the province, so they're observing a lot. Um, and eleven, just I think under twelve. 12- Hundred species out of those 13,000 are endangered or threatened species. So we're also getting data on um, those type of species, which often the observations about those type of species are masked as well. So it protects the location of those of those species, make sure that they're not being, you know, hunted down by people outside. So there's been over 13,000 um, species all around the province. Everyone's been getting an incredible breadth of of the biodiversity, and I mean that's just another another sign of how many species live in BC. That's a really interesting point that I didn't think of is it's also important, you know, not just to acknowledge that these species are, are here and to keep a track of them, but also to protect their whereabouts. Exactly. Yeah. So there's still a lot of um, protection and a few different measures around uh, citizen science that keep it, I mean, valid and safe for all the biodiversity involved for sure. Now, what are some of the more unusual species that have been discovered or sort of noted because of this program? Well, if you go onto iNaturalist, for example, which is one of the main platforms, you can search by, you know, threatened or vulnerable species. And there's been observations of lots of, as Andy said, endangered songbirds. Um, There's been caribou and bison up in the north of the province. There's even been some whale spottings that have been entered. So some of the humpback whales and orcas that we know are their numbers are declining off of uh, off the coast there. We had one finding of a dragonfly. It hadn't been seen in 40 years, and a group of citizen scientists saw 16 of them in one day. So that was uh, a hopeful day for that dragonfly species. But yeah, so I mean, lots of findings like this. There's tons of examples of the ways that citizen science is showing us how animals' home ranges are changing with climate change and how invasive species, especially, that's one really important way that that citizen science is being used to document invasive species and how how they're sort of growing around the province and making sure that we're tracking them and not letting them get any farther than we can afford to. That is fascinating. Well, hey guys, thank you so much. Is there anywhere that people can go to get a little bit more information? 
Yes, so naturechallenge.ca is uh, the main website for the campaign. And then from there, really all I can ask people to do is join iNaturalist, join eBird, and uh, get out there, start taking photos of every every animal, plant, insect footprint that you see and upload it and be part of the campaign. We can do that, right? That's easy. We're probably outside with our cameras already. That's Emma Griggs, the program manager at the BC Parks Foundation, and Andy Day, CEO of the BC Parks Foundation. They really want British Columbians to get outside and take those pictures as part of this massive project that they are undertaking. And you know, it sounds like fun too. I'm not going to answer the question Why because, would you that because question? the you question put is a lot of the new question Supreme is Justice, the radical question, left. Will you who shut is up, your, man? Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so right. Gentlemen, is, I think this we've is ended so this court. You know, you can already buy a T-shirt this morning with that phrase on it. Will you shut up, man? It, it's turned out to be one of the unfortunately memorable things from that shouting match that kind of posed as a debate last night between the two U.S. presidential candidates. It was a lot for Fox News moderator Chris Wallace to deal with, struggling to prevent the candidates from talking all over each other. But we thought, let's break this down in terms of the significance of political debate. Anil Hira joins us now, professor of political science at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for being with us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Well, what did you think? It was really unfortunate. Uh, you know, I teach political science, and you try the first thing you try to get students to do is be open-minded and be civil to each other, and this was a lesson in just the opposite of that. Uh, the only thing I can figure out is that Trump was really trying to rattle Biden and show that he wasn't quick on his feet, and he, he failed to do that, and so nothing much really changed in the in the election other than uh, Trump's historical legacy of bringing democracy down. Do we make a big deal out of these debates, uh, and does the public feel the same way? Like, how significant do you think historically these are? Generally speaking, they don't make much of a difference, but there is uh, the odd time, you know, for example, uh, the Kennedy-Nixon debate, where there's a gotcha moment or a gaffe uh, that can change the course of a race, and I think that's what Trump was going for. He's been consistently down by eight or nine points in national polls. Um, he's down in even in red states, and so he was going for uh, some kind of gaffe by Biden, uh, which he's famous for, and Biden didn't give that up. Right, but even though somebody can come away as being perceived as the winner, it doesn't always matter, does it? I was thinking about the vice presidential debate from 1988 with Lloyd Benson versus Dan Quayle. Everybody says Lloyd Benson won, but it didn't really do anything. It's true, uh, although the last Biden uh, debate uh, with Paul Ryan, one who he was a vice presidential candidate, actually made a a bit of a bump. But I think uh, you're right in general. Unless there's a, a big moment, uh, these debates aren't going to change the course. However, you know we have a highly polarized country, and there's probably a small percentage of undecided voters at this point. I don't think anything happened last night that will change it, but there was a potential for that. Is it, I guess, in some way, I'm trying to look for the good in this. Is there, in some ways, Anil, is it heartening about how many people perhaps tuned in to hopefully hear something of substance? I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's uh, uh, easy to find any kind of redeeming quality to this other than it's clear that Trump has no agenda, that Trump has no decorum, and that Biden seems reasonably capable. I mean, those three things were affirmed and uh, they were already known. Is there much point, do you think, in having other debates if they're just going to be like this? That, that seems to be the discussion down in the States this morning. Yeah, well, I think the Biden camp has some tough decisions to make uh, because the moderator, uh, Chris Wallace's hands were kind of tied. He wasn't able to turn off Trump's microphone, apparently. 
And if I was in Biden's camp, I would insist on having uh, more uh, strict rules about interruptions. It turns out that the next debate will actually be a town hall format. So maybe something better will come out of that format. Now, the town hall format is when it's much more freewheeling, right? And, the, and there's people, audience, people in the audience who ask questions. That's right. And so those questions uh, will allow them to uh, personalize it to a greater degree, and that will probably play to Biden's strength. Yeah. What do you think has to happen now, Anil, like leading up to the election, which is, you know, a month away now? What, what does each candidate, do you think, need to do? Well, it's clear that Trump's strategy is to try to bring up dirt on Biden, either that he's senile or that his son, uh, which was what he brought up repeatedly, uh, is involved in corruption, which is kind of like the pot calling the kettle black. But he has to find a way to try to bring down Biden because he doesn't really have anything positive going for him. He doesn't have an agenda. He has an unprecedented uh, pandemic, an economic crisis. Uh, Really, it's amazing that Trump has even the 40 percent that he does. And for Biden, he just has to not mess up. It would probably be nice if he made a few more appearances and showed his vigor and vitality. Uh, But really, he just needs to keep low key and he'll continue to uh, be ahead in double digits. And do you think that is a debate going on in the Biden camp, too, about, yeah, to determine should we go out and do more or should we play it safe? Yeah, I'm sure that debate is going on on a regular basis. And Trump, of course, lodged this idea that he only had small person events, which is, of course, due to covid and so I, I would expect that Biden's campaign will try to ramp up his activity a little bit. And that's probably the reason why they won't pull out of the next debates, although it would be nice uh, in some ways for them to insist on rules. It'll make Biden look like he's not up to the task. Boy, Anil, you've studied this for a long time. I mean, we keep saying this with every U.S. presidential election, but have we ever seen anything like this before? No, Trump is a really singular uh, person in uh, history. Um, I liken him. I wrote a 2019 book called The Great Disruption about the the 2016 election. And I think once he fades from the scene, I think things will go back to a little more civil discourse. Uh, and certainly all signs are that the Democrats have a really good chance of winning the Senate. If that happens, you're going to see a complete uh, shift in uh, U.S. politics. We will see about that. Anil, thank you. Sure. Thank you very much. And you'll hear the professor of political science at Simon Fraser University kind of breaking down what's happening in the U.S. It is a hot topic today for sure, because it was really unlike any debate that I think anybody has seen before. I don't know if you'd call it a debate. It wasn't just a shouting match of two people yelling at each other the whole time. And yet there's supposed to be, you know, two more to come, but we'll see about that. Voters in Saskatchewan are heading to the polls on October 26th. It's the third province to hold an election in the midst of the pandemic. Premier Scott Moe took over the leader of the Saskatchewan party from Brad Wall in 2018, so this will be his first crack at getting elected as Premier. So there you go, BC. We are not the only ones heading to the polls in the pandemic. We know New Brunswick had to uh, because the situation they were in in BC, well, we are here, whether we like it or not. So what's going on in Saskatchewan? Why are they heading to the polls? We're joined now by Global News anchor and reporter Ryan Kessler in Saskatoon for more on this. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so was this Saskatchewan's time, or was there more time to call an election here? 
Well, first of all, on behalf of Saskatchewan, I have to say that BC sort of stole our thunder here. Um, <laughs> this this is the, the legislative voting day for people in Saskatchewan is October 26th, so two days after BC. But uh, this comes after a springtime where there is rampant speculation that there could have been an early election call. But of course, that coincided basically right as the pandemic hit Canada. So ultimately, that was called off. And now we're going ahead with what was originally uh, put forward through legislation. Okay, and what has the situation been like in Saskatchewan? Because we hear an awful lot about, you know, Ontario, Quebec, and other provinces, but how has COVID-19 been in your province? Well, certainly cases in Saskatchewan haven't been as high as they have been in other provinces, particularly uh, provinces like Quebec. But uh, we have seen uh, several localized outbreaks, uh, particularly in, in different rural communities. We saw, much like Manitoba, uh, we saw a significant uptick in what the province refers to as communal living settings, basically the euphemism used for Hutterite colonies, um, certainly because of the, the close quarters in those communities. We also saw outbreaks in northern Saskatchewan and some of the indigenous communities. And then we've also, much like the rest of Canada, through metro areas, we've seen outbreaks there. Um, not so much on the long-term care side, and that really has been the saving grace for Saskatchewan, but I think the biggest thing coming out of all of this has just been the economic impact where we've seen the entire country affected, right? Yeah, and how has it affected Saskatchewan? Well, in Saskatchewan, I mean, we do we are fortunate enough to have the lowest unemployment rate uh, during the pandemic. That being said, I mean, we we saw people out of work for months. We saw local businesses having to close their doors. And then once they've reopened, of course, they've been faced with all kinds of extra costs to make sure everybody's kept safe and clean uh, and also just changing business models altogether. Um, So really, I mean, it's it's been pretty significant the same way it has been for Canada. It has is the province in a deficit situation like BC, Alberta and other provinces? You know, I don't have the exact figure with me, but it is it is certainly a deficit situation. And that really is the big ballot question, according to both of the parties, both the governing Saskatchewan party and also the NDP is just how you're going to bring this province out of the pandemic and achieve that economic recovery. What's fascinating here is that Saskatchewan party leader Scott Moe says uh, his party will not only make life more affordable for people in Saskatchewan, but they're also pledging to balance the budget by 2024. So that is mm-hmm. a quick turnaround for a deficit, a deficit of hundreds of millions of dollars. On the flip side, the opposition NDP are saying that the only way the SAS party can achieve that is through austerity and cuts, whereas the New Democrats say that they'd be willing to invest in the people of this province through things like education, healthcare, uh, the people files, if you will. Right. So what is Scott Moe's popularity like? Because as we heard, this is his personal first time going to the polls as leader. Well, we did see a um, the the quarterly report from Angus Reid's putting him about fifth among Saskatchewan premiers, but the rating is still in the upper 50s, so that's still considered that's a strong good. rating. Yeah. And uh, certainly that's been the case for Scott Moe through his entire tenure, uh, being a popular premier in Canada, at times being the most popular premier in Canada. And that really is sort of a legacy that he inherited from Brad Wall. When Brad Wall was in power in Saskatchewan, he was the perennial premier favorite. Um, So really, once power changed hands from Brad Wall to Scott Moe, um, it really was sort of just carrying on the popularity of that SAS party brand in this province. Okay, so do you expect the economics then to be the main thing, the main issues in this campaign? 
My suspicion is that we're going to talk about economics and affordability. Of course, you can't really separate the two, but really all we're hearing on the campaign trail, of course, it's only officially been underway for one day now, but all we've heard really is about making sure that people can get back to work, that they have good jobs, that they've got stability in a time where there is just rampant instability, right? I love, you said housing, you said affordability would be an issue as well. Now that's something yeah. we talk a lot about here in BC, but what, like in how in Saskatchewan? Uh, affordability in a, in a different way. Of course, we don't, we don't have the housing prices that British Columbia has, not even close. Uh, but looking at things like taxes, for instance, I mean, uh, the SAS party had to raise the provincial sales tax uh, in the 2017 budget. That was a really hard budget that included a lot of cuts for a lot of different sectors. Um, everything down to, you know, hearing aid plans. Um, we saw the Saskatchewan Transportation Company, which is a provincial bus line, it was cut. So a lot of these sort of social right. services were cut. So so the NDP's position is that there once existed this safety net in the province that caught all these people who may have fallen through the cracks and suddenly that net has been snipped away and people are again able to fall through. So affordability more so in just, you know, right. paying the bills, you know, just being able to live more so than paying off an, an exorbitant million dollar mortgage. Right. Well, we all have those issues, right? And just a little bit different in each province. Exactly. Ryan, thank you so much for your time on this. Thank you. That's Ryan Kessler, Global News anchor and reporter in Saskatoon, talking about how people in Saskatchewan are going to the polls uh, right around the same time that we are. We're the 24th. I believe that Ryan said they are the 26th. So busy time for them as well. Lots going on in Canadian politics these days. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about some news that we heard from Statistics Canada this week, that our total fertility rate has hit an all-time low. But what does total fertility rate mean? We thought, let's get this explained to us. So joining us now to talk more about it is Sarah Browner-Otto, Director of the Centre on Population Dynamics and Associate Professor of Sociology at McGill University. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So what does total fertility mean? So the total fertility rate is a hypothetical measure that uh, demographers and people who, who work at Statistics Canada calculate to that basically tells us if women today experience the current fertility rates every year of their reproductive life, it's the number of children they would have on average. So for us in Canada, they're saying that uh, women would have 1.47 children on average if they experienced the 2019 fertility rates for their whole life. And how has that changed, would you say, over the last 10, 20 years? So it's gone down some uh, over the last 10 years. The peak, uh, the recent peak was in 2008 at 1.6 children on average, and it's gone down to uh, 1.47. But if you look back 20 years, we're at about the exact same place. It was 1.49 in the year 2000. So it's actually been, um, you know, Within this, this this band, but fairly steady. I would, demographers would still talk about this as a decline, though. It's a, it tends to be a small number, so a little variation right. has a lot of meaning. So how does that stack up to other countries? So it is kind of in the middle of European countries. It's lower than what the fertility rate is in the United States, but like most countries... Uh, this decline is uh, is something that you see in most countries. Yeah. So 
Okay. Do we know what some of the factors are behind that then? Yeah, definitely. I mean, some of the early factors for fertility decline in general were things like women's increasing education and participation in the labor market. More recently, it appears that economic uncertainty is also playing a big role. It's just not a time when a lot of people feel uh, really ready to take on the Uh, burdens and expenses of having large families. Um, And also women are feeling a lot of pressure between work and family. It's really hard to manage a full-time career job and uh, kind of live up to the expectations that we have for parents at the same time. You mentioned that in 2008 was the last time we had seen it a little bit higher. And then, of course, we had the Great Recession. Do these economic concerns impact the fertility rate? Like, will we see, do you think, the results of the pandemic, for instance? Yeah, we definitely I, uh, see the impact of, of the economic situation on fertility rate. Uh, this decline is partially due to the economic recession, and I think it will continue to decline next year. Uh, you hear a lot of people saying, oh, but under lockdowns, everybody's home and, you know, yeah. uh, what Bored. else should you do yeah. but make a baby? <laughs> well, it turns out people uh, tend to think about these decisions a little bit more than that. And so while maybe they're, uh, uh, you know, taking advantage of their time at home in in different ways, they're still not deciding right. to go ahead and have more children because they're home because they've lost their jobs. And that does not make people want to start having families. Right. So we're, we're thinking that, oh, it's like a winter storm, right? Where people are socked in yeah. for a couple of days where really they're not just socked in for a couple of days, but they're worried about how they're going to pay the bills. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So if this is a trend that we're seeing, what does it mean for Canada's population? So Canada doesn't really have to kind of um, think that much about the fertility rate in terms of what's happening to its overall population because we have such a high rate of migration. The population stays pretty stable and is still growing, even though the fertility rate is below what we would call the replacement rate of fertility of 2.1 kids on average. Um, so the it, I don't think that this has a big implication for for the Canadian population as a whole. We're still going to be the kind of thriving, growing uh, population with uh, a, a lot of diversity and, uh, you know, different components adding to the, the population growth. When was the last time we hit the 2.1 or the replacement rate for population? <laughs> um, I was looking at those numbers and it looks to me... Like, it was about 1971. <laughs> okay, well, that was the year I was born, so that was a long yeah. <laughs> time ago. So are you saying it's been on a decline ever since then? Yeah, it has, and it started declining uh, much before that. In 1960, the total fertility rate was almost four, um, but by 1970, it had dropped down to 2.1 and has uh, continued. It really reached its low point around 1986-87 and then has been sort of popping back and forth between what it is right now and about uh, 1.8. That's remarkable, though, that if you say in the early 1960s it was four and then by 1971 it was 2.1 or whatever, that's a huge shift in that 10-year period there. 
Yeah, that was incredibly dramatic. We tend not to see big changes like that in demographic rates. And that really was the story of increasing women's education and female labor force participation. Also, I'm in Quebec. And so a big part of the story there was the quiet revolution and just real massive social changes happening at that point that led to decreasing fertility. So for now, though, it looks like it's staying, even though it seems like it's quite low, steady. Yeah, I'm not I'm not worried about low, decreasing fertility rates in general, um, but this one is not a big shock to us. I think it's something uh, along what we would expect in a in, a, in this, especially given the current economic situation. Right. So would you expect this number to stay low for the next couple of years, given the economic situation? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that once we've sort of re entered the the non-pandemic world that there'll be some stimulus uh, efforts into the economy that can kind of boost uh, household income and boost people's perceptions of what uh, of how stable and steady their income is. I think that'll be an important part of it, but I wouldn't expect any big changes over the next couple of years. All right, Sarah, thanks so much for talking to us about it. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was fascinating. That's Sarah Bronner Otto, Director of the Center on Population Dynamics and Associate Professor of Sociology at McGill University, talking about the news from Statistics Canada that Canada's total fertility rate has hit an all-time low. But as you heard Sarah say, they were kind of expecting this, not unusual, especially when you've got the economic conditions the way they are now, and not going to have a huge impact. Although it is interesting to note how much those have very slightly fluctuated in the last like 45 years versus the 10 years before that. This is Mornings with Simi. At a pet situation unfolded at my house yesterday that my first thought was, man, I've got to tell Nikki Reitmeyer about this because she's the most pet person I know. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. I love a good pet story. I'm glad that you waited to tell it to me. <laughs> what went on at your household last night? I tell you, like, I have a dog and a cat, right? Mm-hmm. And most people pay more attention to the dog because he's so cute and he's a chocolate yeah. lab and, you know, people love dogs. Uh, but my cat is also uh, just so incredibly beautiful. Like, she's just a beautiful cat and very well behaved. Like, when we go for walks with the dog, she walks behind us. Like she, really? Yes, she's known in the neighborhood because everybody knows who she is because they see her walking behind us. You know, and, and I'm sure she's thinking the dog is dumb because the dog's on a leash and the cat's just walking <laughs> behind us, right? So yeah, you know how cats are. So I've never had any problems with it. This cat is so well behaved that like when I, you know, I'm ready to go to bed, I just open the door and I call her. She comes in and that's wow. like, she's very well behaved. So yesterday I go to make myself a sandwich for lunch. I make myself a tuna fish sandwich. I cut it in half put half on a plate and leave it on the cutting board. I take the other half downstairs to my daughter who's working from home right now. So I take it down to her because I'm sharing my sandwich with her. I stop to talk to her for a couple minutes. You know, how's your day going? How are you? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Come back upstairs to see for the first time ever. And this cat is 12 years old, okay? First time ever, cat on the kitchen counter, (gasps) on the cutting board, eating my sandwich. Oh, no. Full on. And I had looked at her earlier when I opened the can of tuna because I thought, oh, I'll give her some tuna. But I looked, mm-hmm. oh, no, she's sound asleep on the couch. I'm like, oh, I won't worry about the cat because she's getting kind of old, right? So I left it, didn't think, rinsed my can out, whatever. I'm literally gone for five minutes. I come back and she'd push the bread off the top of the sandwich and she was <laughs> gnawing down on my sandwich. 
She wasn't asleep on the couch. She was waiting to strike. Exactly. (laughs) She had one eye open. She heard that can of tuna open. She thought, perfect. I'm going to wait till this idiot walks downstairs and then there's my chance to strike. I couldn't believe it. That is hilarious. Couldn't believe it. I had a total meltdown because I had been testing her. She loves those um, temptations, you know, those cat treats. Just like the commercial. Yeah, you shake the bag and the cat comes running. I call that cat crack. She loves (laughs) that stuff, like loves that stuff. So I always give her one, like, you know, periodically throughout the day. But I I shake them out and I leave like four or five of them on the counter. So if she wants one, I can just, you know, give her one. But she never eats them. So I was like, oh, she obviously doesn't get up on the counters, even though I see cat hair up there. I go because I leave like a handful of treats there and she never eats them. And then there she is eating my sandwich on the counter. (laughs) Isn't that funny? So what did you do? Were you just so, I I mean, did you yell at her? Were you shocked? I yelled at her. I just screamed at her. And then, of course, that brought out everybody else in the house being like, what is the matter with you? And I was just like, I I couldn't believe this cat. Then I was mad at her for the rest of the day, which she knew. And I kept telling her, I'm not talking to you and I'm not giving you treats. (laughs) (laughs) So she knew that and she avoided me for the rest of the day. But I'm still astounded that she was eating my sandwich. I had to cut that section of my sandwich off and everything. Like, have your dogs ever done something crazy like that? You know what this sort of reminds me of is when I was living in Calgary many moons ago, we had a, a puppy and we were, you know, training the puppy. So you're out at three in the morning because we lived in an apartment building. So, you know, downstairs you go at three in the morning, you got to take the puppy down because it has to go to the bathroom. And one of these mornings and sort of the early days of having this dog, we ran into the neighbor down there and I said, I said, geez, Noah, you know, what are you doing down here? It's it's three in the morning. I'm training a puppy. So, you know, I got to come downstairs frequently with the dog to right. go to the bathroom. But but you have a great Dane who is you know, two oh or boy. three years old. You're past the puppy stage point. Your dog is massive. You know, I'm surprised <laughs> to see you guys down here together. And he goes, Nikki, you won't believe what happened. He goes, my dog is so big that it, when it stands up, it can literally reach a loaf of bread off the top of the refrigerator. That's how big this dog was. Imagine this thing in a small apartment. He said, so I had some laxative pills up high and the dog who was going through a phase where it was getting into everything got into these laxative pills. And he said, Nikki, I don't want to horrify you at this time of the morning But imagine what my apartment looks like after my Great Dane has gotten into my laxative pills. I live in 500 square feet. I think you can imagine what my place looks like. That's a nightmare right there. That's terrible. This is the thing. And I've never had a dog do this either. So we've, we've had pets. Lots of pets over the years. None of them have has ever like gotten up on a counter like that dog did or like my cat did yesterday. And you're telling me your dogs never did this? I had, well, my my dog that I have currently now, she's a rescue. So when I first got her, she was cheeky and she tried to jump up to grab a loaf of bread off the counter. It was the first and last time she ever tried that because I also yelled at her quite thoroughly. Uh, However, yeah, I'll never forget hearing that distinct thud from the kitchen and you go, hold on a second here. Yeah, what's going on here? And of course, you race it and there she is, you know, looking startled with a loaf of bread on the ground. You think, oh, you know, I'm going to get you. But yeah, no, otherwise they... uh, they they tend to st- well I shouldn't say that they tend to stay off things but they find many other things to get into of course <laughs> yeah I know I used to have a the my previous puppy well previous dog that we had for many many years used to love like going through the garbage and so oh, that was a problem yeah. but like had to break her of that habit but yeah overall not a problem I just couldn't I don't know I, I was shocked shocked yesterday 
You know, I'd love to hear people's stories on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. If you have a story like this where your pet has gotten into something, done something crazy that either made you laugh or scream, give us yes. a call on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. Cat or dog, that would be a good one, 604-331-2899. Thank you for that, Nikki. This is Mornings with Simi. I'm going to give you a minute to answer, sir. You have repeatedly well, criticized. I have to answer his statement. No, you have his repeatedly. Statement. Wait, you have repeat, No, you've been talking you back and forth. You made a statement. I'm asking you. I would no, love to you know, end sir. Where was the mic kill button? That's all. Like you know, I watched maybe five minutes because I wanted to preserve my mental state uh, of that debate last night, and that's all I could wonder was: Do they not have a button where they can just kill the mic when the person is not supposed to be talking? Oh boy, so much to unpack from that last night. Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini joins us now. Reggie, have you recovered? Uh, I I didn't sleep. <laughs> and is that because it was still running around in your head or because you were too busy working? Um, it, let's call it a combination of both. Yeah, it was really something with all the prep, all the hype and everything. Uh, boy, it, it was the structure of the debate seemed to me really, really bad. Like, what was Chris Wallace doing? Well, I mean, look, the structure of the debate was really how debates go every single time there is a presidential debate every four years. The difference is we now have Donald Trump as an incumbent trying to run as a challenger, and he threw the debate off course. He took away the decades of kind of posture and poise that we've seen uh, to try and make this solely an election about him, not his policies, not Joe Biden, an election about him, his legacy, uh, and, and simply why he wants to retain power. Right. We also know, though, that debates are kind of made on the quip, right? Like there's always something memorable that comes out in the, ne- in the days after we realize that's kind of what was memorable about the debate. What do you think it was last night? Well, I mean, th- th- there's a lot. I mean, it, it was it was the simple dis- dissolution of, of how uh, debate policy uh, is supposed to be carried out by presidential candidates. But the president's comments that he made about white uh, about um, uh, in- inability to disavow white supremacy, the president's comments about uh, baseless, fraudulent claims for the election and his call to action by supporters to take out and carry out voter intimidation at the polls, uh, the president's inability to do and carry out and describe what he will do in four years. Years after he's reelected, uh, those are all memorable. But so too are moments from Joe Biden. A, his inability to be able to put forward a policy platform because of the interruptions. Uh, him telling the president of the United States to shut up, calling the president of the United States a clown. I mean, this this really was not a presidential debate. No, it wasn't. That will you shut up, man? Seems to be the line that has resonated. They're already selling T-shirts and mugs with this on there. Yeah, I mean, look, that was Joe Biden kind of saying the quiet part out loud, but at the same time kind of doing what Hillary Clinton didn't get the chance to do in 2016. But it also allowed for Joe Biden to be sucked into that insult vortex that President Trump had come out swinging with right at the very beginning. And that is where things started to derail. Uh, it, it, It took Joe Biden off of his platform. It didn't stop him from being able to continue to speak to the American public. But it just uh, kind of lowered right. the level of the debate. Yeah, not stellar for both candidates. However, a lot of damage control being done by the Trump campaign today in regards to those white supremacy comments. Uh, do you think there will have to be more cleanup on that? I mean, look, the, the bigger question here is why does the president of the United States continuously need to be asked 
do you disavow well, white yeah. supremacy? That's that's something that shouldn't need to be asked to a president. And the fact that his his people, whether it's the campaign or in the White House, have to continuously go and do these cleanup efforts on what the president meant to say or here's what we think he was trying to say uh, does a disservice to not only uh, the Republican Party, but to the office of the presidency. So cleanup or not, these are going to be words that now stick with voters through the campaign. So what are the assessments this morning, Reggie, in terms of like the audience and people watching? Like who won? Who lost? Well, look, it's hard to say who won that debate last night uh, because I don't think either of them can be considered a winner. But the ultimate loser last night was the American public. And the number one loser were the undecided voters across America who were looking for something to to attach themselves to, to give them hope on how they want to see America carried for the next four years. And if anybody went into that debate looking to potentially make their mind up, there's a chance that they were pushed away even further. And that 10 percent of undecideds across America could become a make or break situation. And if they don't stick around for debate number two this could be problematic oh let's talk about debate number two when when is this supposed to happen and will anything be different from what we saw well, you know, I'm sure that the Committee on Presidential uh, uh, Debates, which is a nonpartisan committee, is actively working to figure out if there is something that they can do. Because, look, we all say that there should be a button to turn the mics off, but yeah. that could make the moderator look partisan uh, and biased. So they have to be careful about that. Uh, you know, th- there is going to be a second debate from what we know right now. Both parties have said that they are interested in doing that. But... Is is the American public going to be interested in watching that spectacle and debacle play out once again is yet to be seen. Uh, the vice presidential debate will happen next week. There's a potential here for that to kind of set the tone as to what the second debate could potentially look like here. But after last night, again, if you didn't have your mind made up, you're either still firmly in the base of, of those two men that were up on stage, or you may think that casting your ballot is going to be a meaningless event this year. All right, Reggie, thanks very much. Try to get some sleep. Thank you. It's Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, summing up how the debates went last night. This is Mornings with Simi. Remember how we used to think, oh, things will eventually get back to normal. We won't be doing this for very long. I think we've sort of come to the realization, unfortunately, over the last six to eight months that, you know, things, some things are not going to go back to the way they were before, even when and if this pandemic comes to an end. And we will always talk about the changes that happen. For instance, perhaps in your workplace, so many people who are comfortable working from home could potentially change the way businesses operate their kind of brick and mortar offices for sure. The commercial vacancy rate downtown is definitely ticking up. And that was in what was a very tight market prior to all of this. So we wanted to talk about that trend in particular this morning. So joining us is Jason Kisselbach, who's the Senior Vice President and Managing Director at CBRE Group. Uh, Of course, they deal with a lot of commercial real estate. Jason, thanks for being here. Thank you. Now, Vancouver was a notoriously very tight market prior to all of this happening, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, uh, in fact, uh, tied with Toronto for lowest vacancy rate in North America, um, a title which we still hold, even though the vacancy rate is ticking up uh, a little bit quarter over quarter. Yeah, can we talk a bit about how much has that vacancy rate changed then in the last six months? Um, Well, over the past uh, quarter, it's increased about 130 basis points. So it's, I would say it's a fairly significant increase um, quarter over quarter. Through the summer months, what we saw was a lot of businesses um, that had uncertainty about um, what they wanted to do long term with their office space 
put their office up for sublease, uh, in particular if, if a lot of their workforce was working from home, um, just to see if they could um, kind of reduce their exposure and then um, figure out what they wanted to do longer term. So that has added to the vacancy rate. Right. So do you think that we're like, things still have to shake out a little bit more perhaps as I know a lot of companies are right now kind of in the midst of figuring out what to do with their office spaces. Like, should we send people back? Should we let people still work from home? Yeah, that's the the big debate that is, uh, is happening. It's live right now. So to answer your question, yeah, I, I would say there's still, it needs to shake out. Um, there's a bit of a lack of urgency right now for um, office tenants to go sign a 10-year lease for a significant amount of office space. But we are seeing a shift in the narrative. Early on, a lot of people were saying, you know, work from home is great. We could do this forever. Um, and it's, it's shifting now to a bit of, okay, we're getting fatigued with all of the virtual meetings. It's hard to onboard new staff. Um, we still want to have our culture, and, and all of that happens at the office. So we are seeing the narrative shift a bit to, okay, how do we get people back in safely, contact trace, you know, distance, and all those sort of things. Right. So is that going to think, you think, still going to shake out then for the Vancouver market over the next year? Hard to put a timeline on it, um, but we are already having those conversations with our clients who say, okay, we want to come back in some capacity now, you know, what is the right amount of, of people to have back as a percentage of our total workforce? And then how do we do that? You know, maybe do some pilot projects with smaller groups and then um, ideally start to ramp up the amount of people that you bring back to the office. What is this meant for construction of new office space? So, uh, at the start of this year, we had the most amount of office space under construction uh, in the history of downtown Vancouver, and we still have that. A uh, significant amount of that had been pre-leased because we had uh, such high demand for office space. Uh, thankfully, the government deemed construction an essential service, so all of that is still uh, moving along uh, and set to deliver more or less on the same timeline. So construction is still happening. Um, yeah. Right, but I would imagine, though, Jason, if you're, if you're a tenant and you had mm-hmm. signed one of those pre-leases a year ago or two years ago, wouldn't you want your landlord to be a little bit more flexible right now? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of, um, you know, tenants and landlords having just to work together and work the problem. Um, those leases that have been signed for two, three years from now, I think the... The, the rationale right now is it's so far out, things are going to be different by then. Let's not worry about that uh, at this point. Um, and a lot of those were larger kind of household name tenants that we haven't seen right. them put the space on the market for sublease. It's been more of the kind of smaller local based tenants. Interesting. Well, Jason, thank you very much for your time. You bet. Thanks a lot. Jason Kisselbach is the Senior Vice President and Managing Director at CBRE Group, talking about commercial vacancy rates in Vancouver. And you know what? That's true. That's something that really has changed. At the beginning of the pandemic with the lockdown, oh, there was a rush to talk about how, oh, this is changing everything and, oh, this is going to impact us. And now I think people are and businesses and everybody are just much more philosophical about the whole situation like, 
uh, we don't really know what the next six months are going to be like, or we don't know if this is going to be a permanent change because they realize that, yeah, we, maybe people don't want to work from home forever. Maybe they have to have some more flexibility. So there is a time of flux right now. Now, tell me your story. If you've been working from home, are you tired of it? Are you ready to go back to work? What is your situation? We're kind of in the process of working that through in our office space as well. But what is happening in your workplace? Do they want you to come back? Do you want to stay home? What are you comfortable with? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. That's really good to listen to, actually, right now, because it's very soothing, very calming, and it sounds like Canadians could use that. New survey out this morning uh, asking us whether or not we are getting more worried about COVID-19 compared to, say, the last couple of months. Angus Reid has been doing this survey, so let's find out what the results are. Joining us now, Shachi Curl, the Angus Reid Institute's Executive Director. Good morning, Shachi. Good morning, Simi. So what did you ask people? Well, we're checking in on Canadians, on British Columbians every every few weeks on a number of issues related to COVID. This time we wanted to come back and talk to them as we have in the past about issues relating to their own levels of personal concern around getting sick. Do you yourself think you may fall ill from COVID-19? And also worries and concerns uh, for, for friends and family. Also, we wanted to ask people, you know, how's your mental health doing? Like, how are you doing these days? And then in terms of people's, uh, in terms of community health and also the economy, we wanted to understand, uh, do Canadians think that the worst is over or, or whether it's yet to come? So that was what we asked. Okay, and what did people tell you? <laughs> what we found is that as cases have begun spiking and rising again, not just in BC, but across the country, particularly Ontario and Quebec, two places that are now seeing renewed lockdowns and, and targeted closures, targeted restrictions, um, we are basically back to where we were uh, in mid to early March around level of concern. Uh, regarding becoming ill um, and level of concern around friends and family falling ill. So we have not been this worried about COVID-19 as a country since the spring. That's really saying something, though, isn't it? Because you'd think that people are starting to feel better, get this under control, but that would indicate that we don't feel that way. No, and indeed, as as the numbers have ebbed and flowed, uh, as new cases have gone up and gone down, we've seen levels of concern go up and go down. So there was a real trough when, uh, you know, in B.C. and other parts of the country through June and July, we, we saw public health officials congratulating us and saying, good job, you've managed to flatten the curve. There have been very few or only single digits of new cases uh, I think everyone at that point said, hey, this thing is almost over. Yeah. The economic effects are going to be behind us. The health effects are going to be behind us. Uh, but now, hey, we are into this second wave. And so for those who always thought the worst was yet to come because of the second wave, um, they are now joined by others who, who largely thought that COVID was maybe in the rearview mirror. Right. And so you're right, because we all had that reckoning at the end of August, beginning of September, being like, oh, maybe we let our guard down too much. So it maybe it's hitting us harder the second time around. 
in some ways, I think that level of anxiety or awareness is is hitting hard. I don't know if it's harder because, you know, this is only <laughs> this, this is going to be a long haul simi and, oh, and we are still into the relatively early days of it. So we don't know how much worse. Um, our own mindsets or levels of concern around this are, are going to get. I'll, I'll check on that in a few weeks again. But I can tell you in terms of mental health, um, people overall in this country, in this province, feel like they're doing okay. But younger people especially are having uh, a, a worse time of it. So those aged 18 to 34, particularly young men, the youngest men, are most likely to say that actually that their their mental health right now is is pretty poor. It's right. not good. Mm. A lot of that, by the way, is tied to job loss because we know that younger workers, particularly in the service sector, have been hit hardest uh, by job losses as a result of shutdowns, as a result of you know what's happened in, in the service and tourism industries. But there is one cohort that's, that's having an even rougher go of it, and that's women, middle-aged women ages 35 to 54, the ones that's the cohort. I mean, we know that looking after kids and looking after elderly uh, parents or elderly relatives. And working. uh, And working or trying to work or perhaps have lost work because they work in the service sector too. And uh, because we know also that job losses have disproportionately affected women. So they are walking bundles of stress at the moment. There's no doubt about that, and that's what we're seeing with these data. All right, Shachi, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Simi. Shachi Curl, the Executive Director of the Angus Reid Institute. They have been, every once in a while, kind of monitoring the mental health of Canadians and how we're feeling, and some really interesting results in this latest survey that they did there. Seven in ten Canadians, they found, now say they are concerned about personally contracting COVID-19. Now that is up. There's a low point of 46% of people who felt that in June. Now it's more like 70% of people feel that. That's a big difference. Uh, 73% of people also say that they feel the worst of the economic impacts is yet to come for their province. Back in June, when they asked people that question, about half of Canadians said that. So even that has increased by about 20 percentage points. That's a lot of people who are thinking now that we are not almost out of this, that we are still right in the middle of it. So no doubt that impacts people's mental health and how they're feeling about this. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, so here's some good advice for us right now, especially given that the weather is so nice. Go outside and you know what? Take your camera or maybe your phone with you. That is essentially the message from the BC Parks Foundation. The foundation is encouraging people to snap photos of animals, insects, plant life that you find interesting. And why, you ask? Well, their goal is to collect 1 million observations of wildlife in our province. And this is part of a huge project that they are undertaking to help manage, conserve, research, and protect all of the creatures that actually live in BC. Our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to learn more about this project by speaking with Emma Griggs, who's the Program Manager for Wildlife Rivers at the BC Parks Foundation, and Andy Day, CEO of the Foundation. What is the goal of the Big Nature Challenge? So we wanted to engage British Columbians to collect a million observations of life by the end of the year uh, all around the province. So that can be animals, plants, insects. You can record record bird songs. You can take photos of uh, animal footprints. And using a few different platforms, you sort of upload these as data points uh, called citizen science data. 
And the response has been just extraordinary. We're at just over 950,000 as of this morning. Um, so our goal was, you know, to get people outside collecting these observations. And if we're able to reach a million, if everyone gets out there, we could go much farther beyond a million um, and show leadership in BC internationally, nationally. I mean, the UN are going to be meeting about the biodiversity, uh, biodiversity crisis at the UN Congress on Biodiversity coming up pretty quickly here. And this shows that British Columbians are doing something powerful to protect our biodiversity and learn more about our biodiversity and sort of encourage other countries to follow suit. That is really cool. Andrew, how did this idea come about? Well, there's been uh, biodiversity. I think a lot of people know we've, we've seen massive declines in uh, the diversity of life over the last 50 years, and whether that's songbirds or mammals, um, it, it is a real global crisis happening. And British Columbia is really uh, important in the world because it has some of the highest levels of biodiversity in the whole temperate zone. And it's also a huge province. And we thought, well, how are we going <laughs> to how are you going to collect information about all this life around us and we're really blessed by it and last year we raised three million dollars in three months to to protect some land and it it was a a a great story that went viral around the world and we thought well let's do the same thing let's just do it through crowdsourcing and you know british Columbians love to get outside so when they're outside let's just say you know take a few pictures notice what's around you look around and and that's and that's what's happened. It's been this incredible uh, kind of you know donate a, donate and not donate your your what you notice when you're outside. And it's it's just an incredible idea with an incredible response. That's fantastic, uh, Emma. What kind of species have people been spotting so far? Well, there's been over thirteen. 13- thousand species observed around the province so they're observing a lot um and 11 just i think under 1200 species out of those 13,000 are endangered or threatened species so we're also getting data on um those type of species which often the observations about those type of species are masked as well so it protects the location of those of those species make sure that they're not being you know, hunted down by people outside. So there's been over 13,000 um, species all around the province. Everyone's been getting an incredible breadth of of the biodiversity. And I mean, that's just another another sign of how many species live in BC. That's a really interesting point that I didn't think of is it's also important, you know, not just to acknowledge that these species are, are here and to keep a track of them, but also to protect their whereabouts. Exactly. Yeah. So there's still a lot of... Um, protection and a few different measures around uh, citizen science that keep it, I mean, valid and safe for all the biodiversity involved, for sure. Now, what are some of the more unusual species that have been discovered or sort of noted because of this program? Well, if you go onto iNaturalist, for example, which is one of the main platforms, you can search by, you know, threatened or vulnerable species. And there's been observations of Lots of, as Andy said, endangered songbirds. Um, there's been caribou and bison up in the north of the province. There's even been some whale spottings that have been entered. So some of the humpback whales and orcas that we know are, their numbers are declining off of uh, off the coast there. We had one finding of a dragonfly. It hadn't been seen in 40 years. And a group of citizen scientists saw 16 of them in one day. So that was uh, a hopeful day for that dragonfly species. But yeah, so I mean, lots of findings like this. There's tons of examples of the ways that citizen science is showing us how animals' home ranges are changing with climate change and how invasive species, especially, that's one really important way that that citizen science is being used to document invasive species and how, how they're sort of 
growing around the province and making sure that we're tracking them and not letting them get any farther than we can afford to. That is fascinating. Well, hey guys, thank you so much. Is there anywhere that people can go to get a little bit more information? Yes, so naturechallenge.ca is uh, the main website for the campaign. And then from there, really all I can ask people to do is join iNaturalist, join eBird, and uh, get out there, start taking photos of every every animal, plant, insect footprint that you see and upload it and be part of the campaign. We can do that, right? That's easy. We're probably outside with our cameras already. That's Emma Griggs, the Program Manager at the BC Parks Foundation, and Andy Day, CEO of the BC Parks Foundation. They really want British Columbians to get outside and take those pictures as part of this massive project that they are undertaking. And it you know, sounds like fun, too. This is Mornings with Simi. I'm not going to answer the question Why because, would you that because question? the question you is the question is the question left. Will you who shut is up, your, man. Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so right, gentlemen. Is, I think this we've is ended so unprecedented. You know, you can already buy a T-shirt this morning with that phrase on it. Will you shut up, man? It, it's turned out to be one of the unfortunately memorable things from that shouting match that kind of posed as a debate last night between the two U.S. presidential candidates. It was a lot for Fox News moderator Chris Wallace to deal with, struggling to prevent the candidates from talking all over each other. But we thought, let's break this down in terms of the significance of political debate. Anil Hira joins us now, professor of political science at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for being with us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Well, what did you think? It was really unfortunate. Uh, you know, I teach political science, and you try the first thing you try to get students to do is be open-minded and be civil to each other, and this was a lesson in just the opposite of that. Uh, the only thing I can figure out is that Trump was really trying to rattle Biden and show that he wasn't quick on his feet, and he, he failed to do that, and so nothing much really changed in the in the election other than uh, Trump's historical legacy of bringing democracy down. Do we make a big deal out of these debates, uh, and does the public feel the same way? Like, how significant do you think historically these are? Generally speaking, they don't make much of a difference, but there is uh, the odd time, you know, for example, uh, the Kennedy-Nixon debate, where there's a gotcha moment or a gaffe uh, that can change the course of a race, and I think that's what Trump was going for. He's been consistently down by eight or nine points in national polls. Um, he's down in even in red states, and so he was going for uh, some kind of gaffe by Biden, uh, which he's famous for, and Biden didn't give that up. Right, but even though somebody can come away as being perceived as the winner, it doesn't always matter, does it? I was thinking about the vice presidential debate from 1988 with Lloyd Benson versus Dan Quayle. Everybody says Lloyd Benson won, but it didn't really do anything. It's true, uh, although the last Biden uh, debate uh, with Paul Ryan, one who he was a vice presidential candidate, actually made a, a bit of a bump. But I think uh, you're right in general, unless there's a, a big moment, uh, these debates aren't going to change the course. However, you know, we have a highly polarized country, and there's probably a small percentage of undecided voters at this point. I don't think anything happened last night that will change it, but there was a potential for that. Is it, I guess, in some way, I'm trying to look for the good in this. Is there, in some ways, Anil, is it heartening about how many people perhaps tuned in to hopefully hear something of substance? I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's uh, uh, easy to find any kind of redeeming quality to this other than it's clear that Trump has no agenda, that Trump has no decorum, and that Biden seems reasonably capable. I mean, those three things were affirmed and uh, they were already known. 
Is there much point, do you think, in having other debates if they're just going to be like this? That, that seems to be the discussion down in the States this morning. Yeah, well, I think the Biden camp has some tough decisions to make uh, because the moderator, uh, Chris Wallace's hands were kind of tied. He wasn't able to turn off Trump's microphone, apparently. And if I was in Biden's camp, I would insist on having uh, more uh, strict rules about interruptions. It turns out that the next debate will actually be a town hall format. So maybe something better will come out of that format. Now, the town hall format is when it's much more freewheeling, right? And, the, and there's people, audience, people in the audience who ask questions. That's right. And so those questions uh, will allow them to uh, personalize it to a greater degree, and that will probably play to Biden's strength. Yeah. What do you think has to happen now, Anil, like leading up to the election, which is, you know, a month away now? What, what does each candidate, do you think, need to do? Well, it's clear that Trump's strategy is to try to bring up dirt on Biden, either that he's senile or that his son, uh, which was what he brought up repeatedly, uh, is involved in corruption, which is kind of like the pot calling the kettle black. But he has to find a way to try to bring down Biden because he doesn't really have anything positive going for him. He doesn't have an agenda. He has an unprecedented uh, pandemic, an economic crisis. Uh, Really, it's amazing that Trump has even the 40 percent that he does. And for Biden, he just has to not mess up. It would probably be nice if he made a few more appearances and showed his vigor and vitality. Uh, But really, he just needs to keep low key and he'll continue to uh, be ahead in double digits. And do you think that is a debate going on in the Biden camp, too, about, yeah, to determine should we go out and do more or should we play it safe? Yeah, I'm sure that debate is going on on a regular basis. And Trump, of course, lodged this idea that he only had small person events, which is, of course, due to COVID. And so I I would expect that Biden's campaign will try to ramp up his activity a little bit. And that's probably the reason why they won't pull out of the next debates, although it would be nice uh, in some ways for them to insist on rules. It'll make Biden look like he's not up to the task. Boy, Anil, you've studied this for a long time. I mean, we keep saying this with every U.S. presidential election, but have we ever seen anything like this before? No, Trump is a really singular uh, person in uh, history. Um, I liken him. I wrote a 2019 book called The Great Disruption about the the 2016 election. And I think once he fades from the scene, I think things will go back to a little more civil discourse. Uh, and certainly all signs are that the Democrats have a really good chance of winning the Senate. If that happens, you're going to see a complete uh, shift in uh, U.S. politics. We will see about that. Anil, thank you. Sure. Thank you very much. And you'll hear uh, the professor of political science at Simon Fraser University kind of breaking down what's happening in the U.S. It is a hot topic today for sure, because it was really unlike any debate that I think anybody has seen before. I don't know if you'd call it a debate. It wasn't just a shouting match of two people yelling at each other the whole time. And yet there's supposed to be you know two more to come, but we'll see about that.